This is the gift that he decided to give the American people. What the hell is going on? Wrong. Wrong. Drugs? Wrong. Healthcare? Wrong. A wall? Wrong. Republicans? Wrong. Democrats? Wrong. Wrong. They're not Wrong. sending their best. Wrong. Best, best, best. Broadcasting from an undisclosed location. Welcome back, everybody. This is currently Christmas week, so we are not doing a new show. However, I did go back and dig up an interview I did with Basil Summers from March of this year, which in political terms seems like so long ago. But during the interview, we discussed the prospects and predictions for the Democratic nominees at the time. I thought it would be interesting to revisit that and see how accurate we were. And I'll go ahead and tell you in a couple instances, we were very wrong. But I think it's worth a listen to see how things have played out differently. And again, we will be back with a new show the week of January 4th. So come back for that. So today we're going to be talking about the Democratic nominees for President 2020. It's never as far away as it seems. No, The field keeps growing. We're going to try to keep the list to those that at least either are interesting or have some semblance of a chance. Yeah, but I I have a feeling that we're not all going to agree on... uh who all has a semblance of a chance, because I think you're looking at it from a different angle than I am. It's true. Somebody who is generally unlikable as uh, Klobuchar is. Are you kidding? Don't you remember 2016? The person who was genuinely unlikable? Well, the one that lost? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she's not going to make it. That's what she's, I'm saying. She's not going to run. In fact, my theory is anybody who is connected to her or who can be legitimately married to her in any way in public perception basically has an albatross around her. I, I do think, though, that if she had decided to run, that she would have had a reasonable chance only because of the, the loyalists out there. Logically, no. no. Logically, no. But these are not <laughs> these are not logical decisions being oh, made. Oh, that's right. But I think that that's one of the things that hurts Klobuchar's chances is that the likability aspect is now a very real thing where people thought, oh, you could make that up. You start throwing binders at interns and like when your own staff hates you. Klobuchar, I, I, now that's the thing is that what I've come to read about her is that there's personal dirt, okay, uh, surrounding. But people close to her seem to think that she's not a very likable person. Right. That is why when you take her candidacy from the theoretical down into the actual it's probably not going to wash but i'm saying like but there's a her her strategy is basically based on the iowa caucuses okay and that's that's what you have to understand is that we think about these things as candidates in total but really that's not what the people who are setting up campaigns are not setting it up like that they are setting it up for what primary am i going to win and and the reason there's a whole list of candidates we're going to talk about and i'm not going to break right into bernie but i'm going to say that the reason why Klobuchar has a chance is because all of those analyses are relative to the current front runner, who is at this time, especially with Joe Biden not not announced, the front runner and his 100% sure victory in New Hampshire. So now I would like to point out, given that you you dropped the name there, if Joe Biden gets in this race, 100% Bernie Sanders wins New Hampshire. Wins New Hampshire. But I'm just saying. If Joe Biden gets in his race, a lot of things will change. As that's far as that's exactly right. Who's front runner, whatever? Because I mean, you know, his his history, obviously, as a vice president, his varying to some degree, but his likability factor, his likability, he factor, will he will sway a lot of the things. popularity amongst Democrats and those who would vote in a Democratic primary of the Obama administration, and the nostalgia they feel about that in the face of full blown. Trump land. Because apart from Bernie Sanders, none of the candidates, they're all kind of drumming up popularity in their own area. 
Yeah. But nobody's really We'll discuss the, the their star. strengths and weaknesses as we go through. Yeah. Some have some strengths and some have weaknesses. And the only reason why I mentioned this is because the strength that you might not see for Ava Klobuchar is that she is from Minnesota. And she might have an inside track. She might be in the first lane, so to speak, as far as the Iowa caucuses go. I'm sure she has political connections, you know, on the other side of the border there. And she, you know, has... It's easier for somebody who is a representative from Minnesota to campaign in Iowa than it is Kamala Harris. Right. So that's that. But that's, I just that, I still just don't there. see her having the the resources or the ability to overcome such a hump. Clinton the was very unlikable. The problem. Clinton was very unlikable. But I mean, she had the whole. You Clinton can flood ad buys and money into a place and smile a camera a couple of times and you you tweak that, that a little bit. You can tweak the numbers, but you can't. I don't think Klobuchar's sure got that. Something. That ability. I think that she will be overshadowed very, very easily once they really start getting into it. That's right. But I would agree with that. But I, I, looking at her, I put her in my list of five actual people who might get it. Yeah, she will. Uh, she will Howard Dean it. Um, cer- certainly. I don't think she's going to win the Iowa caucuses, but yeah, I, she I, will push very hard and she's going to do surprisingly poorly. I can believe that. Like I said, everything is a wait to be seen outside of. Oh, of course. Once primary season starts, that's like I really. Oh, start I can't wait. Interested. I can't wait. God, yes. Because then you really Just start to drink the sweet mother's milk of, of when you start sifting away the the theoretical from the results that's i like that's that that's exactly all right, All right, so then uh, John Delaney, he was a former congressman from Maryland. I only bring him up because he has been putting in so much work in Iowa. I've like, heard about so this. So early been, on. He's been every, because he, he identifies what I identify. Your parameters as the Democratic primary shapes up is, can you beat Bernie Sanders? There's The reason that dynamic is there is not only because he has the volunteer base and the fundraising, he, he, because of that New Hampshire primary. So anybody who wants to really challenge Bernie Sanders has to win either. Iowa caucuses or the South Carolina primary. Those are the two. Because if Bernie wins Iowa, boy, it's done. If Biden were to come in and win Iowa and South Carolina, okay, that makes Bernie's New Hampshire uh, much less meaningful. Right. You understand what I'm saying? So so he's identified that if you want to break in and you want to be, you know, the McCarthy or McGovern of uh, the 2020 election, whatever you want to call it, the upstart, the surprise candidate, you have to win Iowa. Or you at least have to show in Iowa. Now, once we, you know, about a year from now, once we really start getting into primary season, we can get into this and break down why some things are important. And if Delaney's hardcore push in Iowa has done him any good. Right. But it's... I think he's just too much of an unknown. And it indicates to me, though, like like I said, it reinforces my idea that everybody in the race who is not Bernie Sanders recognizes that they have to win in, or they have to show in Iowa. Okay. And he's a, the latest very the, the uh, people, centrist. What's that? The lady's very much more kind of moderate. He's much more toward the center. That's I, right. Which is why he, he there's no there's no life for that in the party right now. This is what I'm gathering. Everybody's pushing toward the outside, and he's trying to move inward. Which I like a push inward, but it, he's not going to make it. No. All right. I, I think that we should go through. We, we've talked about the fact that we're not going to concentrate too much on candidates we don't see as having really any appeal. But I think that it's useful for us to kind of identify who we're talking about and say, we do not take these candidacies seriously. Okay. okay? Um, one of them, there's a lady. I forget her name. She's uh, She writes self-help books or something. Do you know about this? I just not bring it about. Okay, uh, her name is Marianne Williamson. She's a New Age lecturer. A New Age She's lecturer. A new Age lecturer. And she has proposed giving out $100 billion in reparations for slavery. Okay. And uh, $10 billion to be distributed annually over 
the next decade to various sundry programs defined as reparations. So that's an issue candidacy, right? She's she's never been elected to anything, and she's an author. And I think that basically she's in the race to say, hey, this is an issue that I think that we should take seriously, that no one's taking seriously. That right. would be reparations. I also think that the candidacy, which some people are taking seriously, but I don't see any room for him in the real picture, uh, is Inslee. Yes. Okay, he's the governor of Washington. Yeah, he's a um, climate change. That's his That's his big platform issue. That's right. And I think that he probably sees it differently, but I think that the, the meaning of that candidacy really doesn't go beyond... Uh, no, he's another... He, he can drum up some attention for his calls, right. but his candidacy probably wasn't going to go anywhere. And that's in, in spite of having uh, Bill Nye the science guy... Has, has Bill Nye endorsed him? He was listed among a supporter on several of their... I like Bill Nye. I remember watching On several of their takeaways. I, I don't know how vocal Bill Nye has been, right. but they're they're using the name. So I want to go to the uh, maybe the last of these candidacies, which is are really based on a specific issue. And okay. one that is, you know, at least, if not humorous, I don't want to be derogatory, but Mr. Yang in California and his issue, of course, is universal basic income. To uh, counter the automation right. of all the jobs. The theory being that if the more machines and computers take over jobs, we have less... to do something about the fact that all of this wealth is be- the, there. There's something that I like about his candidacy or what he's doing. Because it is bringing a question that is very deep to the fore, which is, what are we going to do about the fact that all of this wealth is generated by now a very small number of people? No, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a basic income guy okay. necessarily, but I like the fact that his was based more on the automation aspect of it, not just because hey, we should just give people money because they don't have any. Right. His was very specific to a problem, which isn't necessarily a problem now, but like obviously, eventually things will be very different. I don't think it's going to get so bad to where there just aren't jobs for humans, kind of thing. But I do think that certain industries will change. Right. And, and see, that's the thing is that we we when you think about these things in the macro, all right, there's jobs, but then you have to be able to translate that down to the micro. And understand the individual humanity. So, but to use uh, use Amazon as an example, in some of their warehouses where they automated a lot of things and they brought in a lot of you know robots and stuff to do things. Those things used to be human jobs, right? But it actually increased the efficiency to the point to where they expanded the warehouse enough to where they hired so many they more actually actual have humans. More like, humans, right? Exactly. That's usually what happens with technology and automation. Is that and it doesn't... I don't think we're going to get rid of a lot of jobs. I just think that the nature of those jobs will be different. The guy who used to stand on the assembly line in Detroit and weld car doors obviously doesn't do that anymore but there are still people in that factory right working and, and one of the examples i've seen used uh, as an illustration is uh, truck drivers and the idea of automated or self-driving vehicles and i think to myself okay i think that the trucking company even if they decide to install that software because they see some benefit some economic edge some reduction in risk some advantage vis-a-vis the insurance companies, whatever it happens to be, if they decide to make that choice, I still think that they have a guy. I think it will be a you long know? time before there's no guy. So, because it has know. to be proven over such a period of time that there's no accident and, like you said, an increased efficiency. They wouldn't switch to a completely automated truck unless that truck could get it there faster. With and, less you know, fuel usage now, if it less showed, insurance yeah, costs. If it showed that that truck could drive the whole 24 hours so that you were making much better time and then there would actually be a case for the computer over the person, I could get that. But, but like, you would still want the person there and what you basically all it would do is allow for to have a set of a set of conditions you know you're driving on a particular stretch of highway but as i'm saying it's like it's just the motivation is just the efficiency it's not just to not pay the guy because they could that's right there are easier ways to do and and, and we have to stop being luddites about these kinds of things do you understand what i mean by that i do it's good word usage thank you i'm just saying it's not like it's not going to happen 
Right. If something is more efficient, if something is better, that's the way it's going to be done. And you have to deal with that reality. I mean, to an extent, I think it should be done in a certain way. But yeah, I'm, I'm, to, I'm all for the progression of technology and whatnot. It's an interesting right. rabbit hole we just went down. It really is. But uh, automation is like that. That's why I said I like Yang because he attention to an idea that a lot of people don't talk about. Exactly. That's that's what I like. I mean, about they talk it. about factories closing down, but his was tackling a very specific problem. And I like and, that. Yeah. And of, of the candidates who are, who are obviously in the race... Maybe not to become president, but to bring light to an issue. I think uh, maybe the reason why we went down that rabbit hole is Mr. Yang, to me, is the most interesting. Now, let's talk about Cory Booker. Let's talk about Cory Booker. I am having trouble seeing his path unless New York is a big question mark. Right now, the New York primary is kind of scheduled for February 4th, but it always gets amended. It's likely that it won't be on February 4th, but it's possible that it will be on February 4th. So what if the New York primary is early in the season? This could change things. If uh, New York is early, it will be an interesting fight. I think the fight will be between Bernie and, and Corey in, uh, under those circumstances. So uh, an early New York primary serves Cory Booker well, because like I said, as I look at the uh, initial set of primaries, it's difficult to, for me to see yeah, where it, unless Corey breaks it's, Unless it's early enough for him to use it to build momentum, it's exactly. not going to do him much good. Right. I remember a few cycles back where Rudy Giuliani made a primary run and he invested all of his time in the Florida primary and ignored the early primaries. And by the time Florida came around, momentum was built on other campaigns. And that's the thing. Is well, see, I think the I think the reason they did that, though, is because uh, he's an idiot. That may be that may also be true. I just don't see Cory Booker carrying it. Maybe at some point, like if he if he can put something together. Because right now, I mean, he's you know he's likable. He's he's a really good orator. But I just don't think he's got the the nationwide popularity that you would. Yeah, and and I have this vague sense that people connect him with being a corporate Democrat. Um, he does have some some kind of some Wall Street ties, as it were, not directly, but people associate people. Him. There's this association, and the thing is, it's very vague, and it's all done uh, very uh, hackneyed, so you don't know to what degree that's accurate. You you also have to understand that in the Senate, the way things are supposed to work, you're supposed to sometimes vote in a way that is not 100% aligned with your values or your... There's supposed to be compromises, but that's not happening right now because, of course, legislation is not really... The system is not really working the way it's supposed to. He's another reparations guy, too. He also has voiced that he would support that guy. You know... I... can, can, can we take a side minute to, to just kind of deal with that on a very superficial level? Um, I figure we'll get into that later. Because we're going to talk about uh, Bernie Sanders on The Breakfast Club talking about reparations. Oh, really? He, Bernie say, oh, man, he's you're going to hit me with a curveball. I don't know Bernie's uh, opinion on reparations. I'm a... Okay, so uh, Tulsi Gabbard. All right, let's climb up the ladder. Right, we, we, we're climbing up the ladder. And I, I like the fact that you pick up Tulsi Gabbard as maybe the person on the bottom of the ladder. Not I, so much the bottom, but I mean, I, I do think that she's... I like Tulsi she's Gabbard. She's lower than some others. She is lower than some others. Uh, uh, the fact that she's made these these LGBTQ remarks... And it's not good for her. It's not good. I personally like her war stance for the most part. 100%. But I, I think the tide has changed in the Democratic Party. I think you're misreading the Syria thing. I think you're looking too deeply into it. I think I it's a think smaller people... group than you think who is like, oh my God, I can't believe Trump's going out of Syria. I think that that's a media driven impression that the average on the ground Democrat might think that Trump is 
is doing this a little haphazardly, which uh, really, come on, you can't say that's not a possibility. No, but I'm just saying that it used to be the mention of war or the thought of going to war with somebody or staying in a war was abhorrent to most of the, the controlling party there. And I would say that it's, it, you should be, it, it should be abhorrent, the idea of... Oh, it totally should be, but I don't believe that it is as much now. So I, I think that people tie that in with, you know, with not wanting to do the things that they're doing now. I mean, we've been in these wars for 20 years. 20 years. Different kind of country. Yeah. Also, her acknowledgement of radical Islamic terrorism, I think, turns some people off because they... That's kind of a sketchy ground for some people because where the logical person would just see it as only the radical aspects of it and the ones that are actually blowing stuff up. But I think too many people worry that that's an Islamophobic kind of thing. Okay. And she hasn't always been as careful with her, her comments. She her gets words. a lot of cachet, and, and it, maybe there are some people who feel that way, but she gets a wide berth on issues like that since she was in the actual fight. Right. You get to say more when you are a veteran of the Iraq War. Which is why I appreciate more Which is her, why she, I, I, I appreciate was, her anti-war stance because exactly. you can say, she's like, I've been there, I've seen it, I don't want to do it anymore. I picked out Sanders Gabbard as the ticket in 2016. I, I hate to just be reinforcing my old opinions, but I do think that Tulsi is running perhaps as a vice presidential candidate. There's a lot of reasons why she's a good vice presidential candidate on a Bernie Sanders ticket. She is one of the few elected officials who endorsed Bernie Sanders in the 2016 election. And she's young, and I think that that's important. She's also female and not traditionally Anglo-Saxon. Not that Bernie is Anglo-Saxon either. I really eschew the current mood within democratic politics that needs to identify all candidates on some scale of identity politics. Well, and that is that is Bernie's biggest problem right now is that over the past, especially the past couple of years, they have really had a push towards identity politics and making sure that everybody checks some kind of box. It's funny that Bernie doesn't get to check a box. It's not like he didn't grow up poor and Jewish. But this is what I'm saying is that he, that's going to be his biggest problem is that he doesn't classify as what they're looking for. They don't think of Jews as in that box, which is super crazy. You do know that, right? But it's super crazy. Like I've read stories about Bernie at university. He was cooking, you know, uh, food over canned heat, man. I thought you were going to say meth. Nope, uh, he did not cook meth. He I cooked think, uh, his food over canned heat, though. The man had nothing. I, I think the whole identity politics thing is is it's really it's dumb. It's, I, just, it's, I just think the whole thing's stupid. Not that not that there aren't you know segments of the population that need different kinds of help or assistance or you know their backgrounds are different. I understand all of that and why you should understand everybody for who and what they are. But just pushing that we're only going to accept a candidate. Right or a person, if they are of this. I just think that's in a weird position. This is what I see from MSNBC, okay? And it, uh, I think it's, as we're going through this list of candidates, I think it's important for me, at least, to acknowledge what I see from MSNBC. People who listen to a lot of MSNBC can console themselves or believe that their media choices are different than the people who choose to watch Fox News. And they are different a little bit in that I, I think that at least MSNBC, uh, MSNBC does it with a little more panache. It's definitely the Democratic parties. It's really hard to make the, to define this line. But I see things on MSNBC that indicate to me that they are doing the work of what I would classify as the Democratic establishment. I felt that that I felt that during the last election cycle, the idea that the Democratic establishment manipulated the election against Bernie Sanders is not really something that's questioned. Okay, and I I do believe that you know it goes to the way media treated the two candidates. I don't know what kind of lines you want to draw there. It's hard for me to not see it. And what I've seen out of MSNBC lately is they are pushing two narratives, which I think are hilariously contrasting. One is we need to have somebody who is not an old white man 
or we need to have Joe Biden. <laughs> hmm. What's in, it's funny about that. Both of those things are not Bernie Sanders. And I think that there is this push, you know, again, I don't want to be the hammer that sees everything as a nail, but it, there seems to be this pushback against Bernie. And as somebody who's worked in and around party politics before, I understand it. There's a knee jerk negative reaction to somebody who's identified as independent for 32 years. I think a lot of people kind of see that situation. I think it was Kathy Griffin had said something about she wouldn't support a candidate if it was just another old white man or whatever and somebody <sighs> had already said they were like but I bet if Joe Biden got in you Probably would change your mind you know? and that's that's the that's the media dynamic I see uh, playing up I, I I think they played up Amy uh, Klobuchar mm -hmm. and uh, do we want to do Amy I mean is is Amy right above Tulsi on your ladder Klobuchar did not rate enough for me to put together show notes on her Ooh, I that's disagree. how low on the list she is I disagree and that's because I think that you might Klobuchar be looking at this Klobuchar did not get show notes and let me point out we talked about John Delaney okay I, I get that who do you think is higher on on the list than Klobuchar? Klobuchar or Hickenlooper? Klobuchar. Yeah? Yep. I mean, I agree that Hickenlooper has no... Hickenlooper has, no has as much chance of getting the Democratic nomination as John Kasich does of getting the Republican nomination. They both represent extraordinarily centrist politics, which is a 1990s understanding of the political field. I think a lot of uh, older heads in the game had that idea that the real thing you need to do is capture the center. And at least since 2008, that has not been the case. What you need to do is capture the extreme, capture the left, capture the independents, the 43% of voters who are registered independent. The idea that many people have about those voters is that they are in the center, but that's not true at all. I don't think the independents are quite in the center. Generally, the majority of them they, are to the left or to the right of the parties that they had left. That they left. See, I don't. In, now, I, mean, I talked to a have, lot of voters. I, as you know, I mean, I talked to a lot of people, and I, I find that most of those people are are the other way. Not always. I, I can think of a few examples of people that are the, the the more extreme. But a lot of the people are, and again, this is just in my experience, it's total anecdotal evidence. But a lot of the people I've talked to have left because they they feel that there was a good idea had, and the party moved in a different direction. Well, that is exactly. Now, correct. I've talked to a lot of people on the left that, you know, they were happy with some things that, uh, you know, maybe Obama did or whatever, but then they thought that going from there, it was going in the wrong direction. Uh, the Republicans especially, I thought that people were like, well, what if we just focused on, you know, this basic shit here, and then it headed off into another, you know, crazy... Well, what, you, what you're defining there is exactly right, and it, I, mis, I misspeak when I say they are to the left or to the right of their parties. What they perceive is that they have values that kind of link up with those parties, but they don't believe that the Democratic Party truly, uh, they believe that the Democratic Party is corrupt and the people on the right believe that the Republican Party is corrupt. And uh, the fact that- I think that the independents on each side, like I said, they're not quite center because I do believe that they are on It's the a left variant right. rainbow is what it but is, I my friend. There's a whole bunch of different groups there. Independents generally believe that their side is the, is the appropriate side Side, but would be better without the establishment in charge of that side. The Why? left independents want to get rid of the democratic structure. Exactly. The right independents want to get rid of the Republican this structure. This is the reason why Donald Trump won the nomination in 2016 and why it is a extremely precarious and tall mountain to climb beating Bernie Sanders in 2020 because no other candidate has the perception, at least within his supporters, that that's true that Bernie does. 
And he earns it legitimately. 32 years registered as an independent, caucusing with the Democrats, 32 years in the Senate and the Congress, but always registering as independent and fighting off occasional Democratic challengers and always winning. He was decidedly not a Democrat that has cachet for those who support him. And that's the biggest group. Independents are 43%. I think, you know, it's basically, what, 25% Democrat and 20% Republican, roughly? Something like that. What's because more and more people are, they're not liking the, the parties. Yeah, those in charge, I guess you would say. The establishment. As yes. it were, I had hoped that if Trump became the uh, the nominee of the Republicans, and clearly that wouldn't work out, <laughs> um, that that would kind of signal like a just a total overhaul of their their policies and the way they handle things, because they would obviously have to get back in touch with the people who had a little more sense. I thought with the whole thing with Bernie Sanders and getting screwed over with the Clinton situation, there would be like a little bit of a revolution there. And I do think that to so, an extent, the Democrats have touched on that. The Republicans are, are a little more torn because they can't figure out if they need to fix things or not, because the Trump supporters obviously think that they have been fixed. That's how he's in there. That's right. And then other people think that him being in there is and we need to understand this in 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 not a cynical or or humorous way only if if we're going to have a you know correct analysis of what the population we have to understand that 12 percent of people who supported bernie sanders and i just read this today if you lose 10 percent of bernie sanders supporters again including the left-hand side of that independent group this article said 12 percent i guess at around 10 percent so let's say it's 40 percent of the party that's four percent if you lose four percent of your base in a president presidential election, it's done, man. It's done. And that's how they lost. They lost the Bernie Bros. That's the most important block. Well, apart from them being so different from an ideology standpoint, I guess, between Clinton and and Bernie Sanders, not only would it have been hard to bring them in because of that, but then obviously how everything played out. A lot of them, they didn't just feel like their candidate didn't win. They just felt very betrayed. Which they were. And the thing is, is it was a very, I'd never seen corruption so blatant and out there as that. And then to turn around, then to turn around to those same people and be like, look. I know we just screwed you guys really hard. Really hard. But we're going to need you to come in and work. We're going to keep you. Not, we need you to come in and, and, and vote for us and to make phone calls. Yeah. And and I was one of the people, of course, who said, yes, yes, that is the right answer. Just because <laughs> of the true magnitude of what electing Donald Trump meant to me. And that was even when you didn't think it was going to happen. <sighs> it's like I wouldn't allow myself that. I, you know, before it happened, you just have to believe that something like that is not possible if you want you know, faith in your nation. Although I've decided that, you know, in the long run, it could be a good thing for the Democratic Party to have gone through this cycle where you've shown your ass. You've shown how corrupt you are. You've shown the underbelly of the process. Because do we think that that's the first time that that ever happened? Oh, no. This is what I'm saying. It was the, it was right. the most blatant. It this wasn't behind closed doors. They did it right in front of everybody. Like, which is the hubris of it, which was so amazing. The arrangement of debates on nights when there were NFL playoff games happening? I mean, yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> really? Wasserman Schultz coming out and just like, yeah, but you know, we can do that. We can pretty much do that's, whatever we want. It's like you... You can't say that. You're not supposed to say that. It's like, I know that you you feel that way. I've always known that. But you can't come out and tell people that. Elizabeth Warren. She doesn't have any breathing room because her issues are Bernie's issues and that really, really, really stupid thing she did with the DNA test. I think the two biggest issues she has, first off, is the DNA test. I mean, like, it was dumb back when it was just kind of a joke. 
It was a dumb thing for her to say ever. But it was, you know, it's a, it's a thing. You know, you believe you got a heritage, whatever, and you put it out she there. She should never have acknowledged. She if she had come up 15% Native American, it would have been a smackdown. And that's where I think she made a mistake. She really did believe that she was much more Native American. But that's what it's a thing that people say. I, everybody you talk to out there is like, oh, yeah, I'm part Native American. Everybody thinks they're part Native American. Doesn't matter. You're like, yeah, whatever. She should have let it go. Never mentioned she it again. She should have let it go. Doubled down. Game would have lost. But when she got in. Really, really she, screwed the pooch on it. When she got in, I didn't think she had a lot of chance anyway. Right. When Warren got in, not thinking she was probably going to be the front runner anyway. Right. And then the DNA test hurt her. But even at that point, her only real shot was that the Bernie doesn't get in. Right. Because having a progressive platform and being a woman, all those things could play to her advantage. But yes, and he... being a registered member of the Democratic Party, and I'm telling you, don't think that that's not the biggest part of it. What she is, is somebody that a part of the Democratic mainstream can tolerate. They say, look, a huge percentage of her policy ideas, what she's going to write down and what she's going to say, are very similar to what Bernie is saying. However, she's a party girl, and I mean that in the same, you know, not in any kind of derogatory way. She believes in the party. She's a member of the party. She's worked within the party. She's not an independent. There's never been a Democrat who was running against her in a general election. And the people who get deep down into that party politics, they, they're wearing blue and red glasses, man. You know, you got to understand. And those are that's a huge segment of your Democratic primary voter, especially in states that have closed primaries. So, you know, that's that was her appeal is that she's Bernie Sanders, but actually a Democrat. And that's true. She's the she's the female establishment. Bernie Sanders. Uh, you know, she had a real shot before the before the DNA test. It, it, there, and also she cannot beat Donald Trump because of that. You have to see this because it's just like the Clinton thing. He he will never never let up on him. Oh, man. Every time they debate, that's half his talking points. Is... And, and the thing is, is he'll do it artfully and he will make it funny. Oh, yeah. And that's the, you're not going to beat the funny. Kamala Harris. Depending on who you ask, between Sanders and everybody else, Kamala Harris is generally the one that people think are gonna is going to be is going to be the one. She's checking boxes. She's very popular. She's got a, a charisma about her. I think that her biggest thing is, as a prosecutor, she is not. Right. She was not a friendly person. She's a cop. To the lower class. Yes. That's, okay, that's, that, not, that's what it comes down and, to for me, actually. That, that she's a cop. And that's it. But I'm saying she, you can't come out and, you know, talk about all the things you want to do, especially in the realm of, you know, justice reform and all these things. You can't have that kind of history where you're like, hey, I used to put all you guys in jail, but promise we're buddies now. Now we're good. And and then, then for her to come out and say that even though as a prosecutor in California, she, you know, lots of people are going to jail before the law changes for marijuana use and that you use marijuana. And not only were you smoking weed, you were smoking weed while you were listening to Snoop Dogg and Tupac five years before they got an album deal. Yes. And, and those kind but of that things. Could be the, that could be her inside track. She is so in tune with them. She got albums so early. <laughs> she was ahead of the curve. Yeah. She was ahead of the curve. Again, let us take a look at the real magic eye, my friend, which is not these people's positions or these people's policies, but where and when the primary schedule falls. And you'll notice that we have something we haven't spoken of yet, which is Super Tuesday and the inclusion within Super Tuesday of California. Right now, Super Tuesday is set for... Super Tuesday is March 3rd. Yes, and California is a part of it this time. Alabama, California, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, and Virginia are all already committed. 
There's a whole long list of states that haven't scheduled, some of which have naturally scheduled on Super Tuesday, but we won't include them for right now. Nine states on Super Tuesday, including California. So I think we'll put a we should put a stream together, do a little live coverage of oh, Super we're gonna Tuesday do some results. live coverage about Super Tuesday. That's something we're gonna do. And I think that Again, Kamala Harris's strategy is to win the California primary. If you win the California primary and this becomes a gnarly primary season where one person does not come out in front right but away. But non-states, non-states, look at that just off the top. Non-states, if she, I mean, okay, so she probably takes California because that's her, that's her home Maybe. Turf, but assuming she does. Let's assume she does. What else do you think she takes out of the non? That's a good question. Okay, and here's the thing. Again, Amy A lot of Klobuchar's, speculation. Minnesota is on Super Tuesday. So let's imagine wins or comes in second in Iowa. If Klobuchar is still in it on Super Tuesday, I will be amazed. That's the big question. I'll be amazed. Super Tuesday and also, interestingly, Vermont and Texas. Somebody we haven't talked about yet is Beto O'Rourke. I think that Beto O'Rourke is one of the actual real threats. Now, I do believe that. I'm giving him 50-50 on getting in. Whether he wants to get in now or whether he wants to hold off and kind of, you know, get his stuff together. If he does jump in for 2020, he will he will not quite a Biden, but he will make some waves and disrupt a lot of people's... Right. And one of the things that he's he He's what has, you'd call a bracket buster. He is exactly that. And I, I think I count Amy Klobuchar as one of those. And the reason why is because it's possible if Amy Klobuchar pulled out an actual full-blown victory in Iowa and then won Minnesota on Super Tuesday, she would be in the game. She would have delegates. Okay. Um, South Carolina. South Carolina is the primary before Super Tuesday. I consider that to be, first of all, the Democratic Party in South Carolina is very African-American. So that's one of the things that gave Barack Obama some uh, momentum in uh, 2008. He won in Iowa, and then he goes into South Carolina. So we have to, I, if Biden's in, I think Biden is strong in South Carolina. Very, you know, traditional Democratic Party. Where Bernie is strong is in states that are extremely red but are not the Deep South, okay? Your your Montanas, okay, your Wyomings, even West Virginia, interestingly enough, because West Virginia is not the Deep South. In those states, the, the left tends to be more radical than in other states. Yeah, barring O'Rourke getting in, because I don't know if he's going to set it out, barring if Joe Biden doesn't, because I don't even know if I would give Biden 50-50. On jumping in, I don't think he. I don't think he wants it that bad. That's that's. But what's if up. he does, if he does get involved, he's he's messing it up for he, a lot of people. He makes it really hard for Bernie. Now Bernie's got a lot of problems himself. We've talked about the sort of um, old white man thing he's got going on. There's a lot of issues he had with the 2016 campaign, with a lot of sexual harassment and men and women being paid differently. Which, as a Democratic candidate, that was. I don't. I don't know that that's stuff that sticks. I don't know. I haven't well, heard about it. So it, to me, it's, that means it's, how true it is. I mean, it's arguable. I don't know the details, but it's cycled enough that it's a thing people talk about now. Okay, I haven't heard so a lot of that, uh, and, and to me for, that indicates that, it's the, that that impression is not ubiquitous of the, the body right. politic. But I'm it's just saying, niche. the people who are already looking, who aren't crazy about the idea, if you weren't a Bernie Sanders fan from before, if you're coming into it new, he's an old white guy. He's had uh, presumably a he's like, pay gap issue. He's an old white guy who has photographs of himself trying to drag a African-American woman away from police who are going to beat her at a civil rights rally. But I'm saying coming into this 20 now, or 30 years before that was the hip position to have as a Democrat. But if you were not a Bernie Sanders fan from 2016, you don't know that shit yet well we need to message that and i think he's we you we're, need we're, to message that i ain't messaging any of that I, I, yeah i know i said we and i didn't necessarily you meant the that. royal we <laughs> the, the royal we man absolutely 
the, the people who I hope to be working with and for if we are working towards a Bernie Sanders uh, candidacy, which I absolutely oh, I would you advocate. Are, you are now and have pretty much always been hashtag Team Sanders. Since he came out. That's exactly right. And I saw a path in 2016. I realized it was an unlikely path, but I knew that he would overperform in places like Idaho and Utah. I just don't think he's going to pull in the attention and sort of endorsement that he did the last time. Not that he's, it's not that he's got a great uphill battle because he's got a lot of money. His fundraising is, is just off the rails, off the rails. And he's very popular. I'm saying that those are two really important, names. but in a party that is pushing the identity politics, it's, it's not, not the, not the rank and file. And, and I believe that you will see, you know, I, I but really a lot of the rank and file didn't like Clinton either. And yet it was made. So I'm saying that people are not going to be, pushing things in his direction this time either. No, in fact, I think I see this the media a- already, that's what I'm saying, is I already see MSNBC talking about how the Democrats either need to nominate somebody who's not an old white man or they need to nominate Joe Biden. They're going right, to stack So let me him. break it down for you. I've been kind of like flirting with this a little bit, and I want to tell you why I think. What I think happened in 2016 vis-a-vis the left and the different blocks within the left and why I think that Bernie Sanders is nigh to unbeatable. The reason why is because there is a group of people that a lot of people who don't like Trump, which is a majority of the country, look at very sideways. These are people who supported Bernie Sanders, but then refused to support Hillary Clinton. And as you said, you know, we, we've discussed those people a little bit. I was not one of those people, but I understood their position. I tried to argue with many people. And say, please, 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 just go ahead and, you know, hold your nose and vote for the Democrat because, wow, Trump. But I could not fault them for saying there's no way I'm going to vote for the candidate that I know screwed over my candidate. No matter how they found that out, all the different arguments you can make against that do not affect the person who feels wronged. Does not affect the person who went to the polls in Arizona having voted in Democratic primaries for the last four cycles for the last 16 years as a registered Democrat, and they get to the poll and their party registration has mysteriously been changed to Libertarian or Green or U.S. Constitution Party. There's all kinds of YouTube videos thrown up on people like, what the fuck, I'm not Libertarian. I've been coming in. They just all happen to have been members of Bernie Sanders' Facebook groups. You're not going to... That's a, there's an emotional response. Now, do you think that was the Russians? I don't know who it was, and I don't want to. I just know that it happened. I know that the average number of voters who get removed from the rolls in Brooklyn, in the district that includes Brooklyn, that includes Bernie Sanders' hometown, is around thirty or 40,000 per election cycle. And in the 2000s... I will tell you that even, even as it played out, he, he did seem to catch a, catch a deep dicking in his, so many in his home turf. On his home turf. Because in it, Brooklyn. that was the one place that I really thought he was going to throw down, and it just seemed very weird that so much stuff happened. Well, there was, there's a voting district in, in Brooklyn that normally has thirty to 40,000 people removed from the voting rolls every cycle, and these are people whose addresses change. These are people who don't live in Brooklyn anymore. And there's a whole system they use to determine how they're going to you know, cycle the voting rolls to make them more update and more accurate. And it usually is about thirty or 40,000. And then this cycle is 120,000, just a factor of three or 400 times the normal number of people who will be removed from the voting rolls in Brooklyn, which just happens to be Bernie Sanders' hometown. 
So there's all these different weird, anecdotal, unprovable ways in which these people feel that they were wronged. And then there's just the memos and the emails from the DNC. Yeah, that was... Okay, then there's just those, where it really nails it down. And once you have that nailed down in black and white, that gives such field to the imagination for the people who are really hardcore Bernie Sanders supporters. Now, every possible way in which they could have been maligned or screwed or any, you know, oh, yeah, they were doing that too. And, oh, yeah, they were stealing votes over here. And it just gives uh, root to, and you cannot blame somebody for that. They say, look, we know that the party hierarchy was working against us. We have the goddamn emails. So why wouldn't we believe that there were shenanigans in Arizona and shenanigans in Nevada and shenanigans in the South and shenanigans everywhere. That's what you end up believing. So that group of people is intractable. They are not movable. The the core of Bernie Sanders supporters are not only not going to move to any other camp, they also are irrationally enthusiastic about their candidate, and that emotional response is a big part of that. It's the feeling that, man, we were close and we just might have gotten, if it hadn't been for the meddling, <laughs> if it hadn't been for them meddling establishment types, you know, and, and you're not going to, you're people, that's why he is the front runner is because everybody who is not a hardcore Bernie supporter gets split between the rest of the candidates. Joe Biden feels like the one candidate who could really coalesce that. You know, who could really bring in all the different people who are not naturally likely to support somebody like Bernie Sanders. Right. You know, so Joe Biden feels like the only other person who can really suck up that much air in the room. But now that we're done with the list, this is really my theory. There's no, it's interesting because those people acted on principle instead of rationally. They did not act rationally. They said, it doesn't matter to us whether we think that Donald Trump is something that we want to see. It doesn't matter. I've spoken to a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters who didn't vote for Clinton, and it was an emotional response. It was a, it's a response of, these are my principles and I am not going to sacrifice them, which you can describe as rational, but they would say we knew how Trump, bad Trump was and how bad he could be, and it didn't matter. It was too difficult. It was something they couldn't process to vote for Hillary Clinton. And because of that stance, I believe that they've become the most powerful block in the 2020 primary because they will not be moved. And that's what all the other candidates are up against is Bernie Sanders' core is completely loyal and completely rabid to an irrational level. And all the other candidates have to fight for the scraps that are not the percentage of the party that was devoted to Bernie Sanders in 2016. All right. Excellent analysis. I have always said that I believe that this election will come down to a turnout issue because I think a lot of what pushed Trump over was that his base showed up in droves. They were very excited and Clinton's obviously didn't obviously for didn't. a myriad of reasons. Now, whether or not Trump's base comes out in the same numbers as they did now that they've actually seen what happened, but the other side obviously was more motivated now because now there's an anti-Trump kind of thing. I think that if the Democrats put up a candidate that brings people to the poll, that generates some some excitement and some, some fervor, that they will win. But I believe that if they put up another half-ass yes. establishment candidate, I, I believe that I believe that they will lose. And, I think and it's too early to see how it's going to play out, but I do believe that it will come down to that factor. If Bernie Sanders ends up being the Democratic candidate, I would give him better odds than not of winning That's right. because he has that, that mobilized crowd. What you're looking at to me is our numbers that are already baked in. 
I don't think that Trump's base can be any more motivated than it was. What you're looking for here is the people who either vote for their candidate or don't vote. Maybe some of them defected to Trump, but most of them either didn't vote for president or they voted for Jill Stein or they did some other I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton move. That's your that's your lost voter. That's the margin of error in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And uh, you've got to find that vote. And Joe Biden is the other candidate who can make the argument that they can get that vote. And that's that's through, you know, that's through polling. People, people have asked that question. And people can say, well, well that's, you know. Are you pandering to the uh, old white man demographic? It's on some level, we have to just get to a point where we agree, you know, okay, we need to win this next election. And I don't think that identifying that white males who ha- are in the lower 50th percentile of the economic ladder is a group that may have traditionally voted Democrat in the past and seems to have been voting Republican over the last couple cycles. You know, you have to be able to see that truth honestly. And, you know, we need bread and butter economic issue politics on the left. The most important thing is the wealth gap vis-a-vis who traditionally votes Democrat. You know, it's and we, we have to understand that, that what's happened economically and the realities that people suffer economically are much more important to their personal lives than identity politics issues. And both Biden and Bernie Sanders speak on that level to people. You know, people understand that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders is serious and outspoken about these things. And Joe Biden just does have that, you know, working man. He just has that touch where he can speak the language of working class people. So those are the two people who can speak to that audience. And those are the two people who can beat Trump. If we nominate somebody because of their identity, that plays right into Trump's hands. That's exactly what they want us to do. Which isn't necessarily a you know a given loss. That's right. But if you if you play it that way, then somebody really has to come in with some with some attraction. They really have to have some right. some draw. I, and I don't I don't see anybody in the field right now that has that. You have to be able to motivate the left edge of the voter base. You have to motivate the people who didn't vote for you in 2016. It's really not that complex a calculus equation. You know, really, the the numbers said that Hillary's going to win by five. And what's interesting is that it was not outside the margin of error. When you really look at it, the predictions were actually accurate in a mathematical sense. You understand how to read that. Hillary won by like two and a half percent. They said they're shooting one by five percent. That's within the margin of error. And of course, that two and a half percent was spread out in a way that didn't work out very well for her. But uh, it's not like the models were wrong. You made some excellent points, man. I, I think that's, you know, it's all a wait and see game. I'm looking forward to the primary season. But I thank you again for coming back so quick. This is something obviously we were going to discuss in the in the coming weeks anyway. But That's right. And, and you know, like I say, I, the, the elephant in the room is Joe Biden. And we need to do it again here in a couple of months when the field is complete. Oh, yeah. Once we find out if Biden or O'Rourke gets involved. Those are the big questions. If neither one of them get involved, man, it's really Bernie's to lose. The way it I is. It. I, would, I would give you that. Thank you all for listening to this archive episode of the Everybody's Wrong podcast. Again, we will be back the week of January the 4th. Until then, you can contact us at Common Sense Underground on Facebook, and I am D.B. Parsons on Twitter. Enjoy your holiday. This isn't freedom. Freedom.
Damn you! Damn you all! 